Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. You are listening to As a Woman, episode 126 Optimizing IVF with Dr. Anat Brower. Welcome to As a Woman, the podcast hosted by fertility physician, Dr. Natalie Crawford, to educate and empower women. Each week, learn about your health, your fertility, and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community, fostering collaboration over competition while learning how to authentically find your voice and amplify others as a woman. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the As a Woman podcast. I am so excited to bring you a conversation I had with a dear friend of mine, an amazing board-certified reproductive endocrinologist in New York City, Dr. Anat Brower. I must tell you, she is one of my first people. She's one of the first people I'll go to when things get crazy in this field, and y'all know things get crazy. She's overall an amazing human. She got her medical degree from George Washington University School of Medicine, where she was AOA, which means she's super smart. She completed OBGYN residency at New York Presbyterian Cornell, and she did her fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility at Cornell as well, which is a super busy, really great program. She is currently the IVF director at Shady Grove Fertility in New York City, and before that, she was assistant clinical professor at NYU. She has an amazing IVF experience. She is a fabulous clinician, and you are just going to love this today. Okay, Anat, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I love this podcast. I try to listen to as many episodes as I can, and I've learned so much from it personally and professionally, so I appreciate you having me. Oh, you're the best. You know, we are friends in real life, but we started out as friends through Instagram. And I just love that Instagram or social media in general has this ability to bring us together, even people who are in the same field and connect us. And personally and professionally, we can grow and learn together. And you're one of the first people I text when something crazy happens in our field, or I get annoyed by something, or I have a question. And I just love that relationship with you. So I want everybody to know You are both an in-real-life friend and an Instagram and online friend, and I admire and respect you so, so much. Thank you. And everything goes right back to you as well. I just think we're like-minded in a lot of ways regarding practicing medicine, regarding the business of medicine, regarding what's happening in our field. And I I just love that. So I thank you for always being a resource. Well, let's introduce you to my audience a little bit. So I would love it if you'd give us a little bit of a background on how you got into medicine and how you chose infertility and what that journey was like for you. So it was a little bit of a circuitous path. So my parents are both physicians and 
you know, my mom grew up in Poland um, with a family that really didn't have any doctors. And my dad grew up actually in Sudan, Africa, the first and only doctor in his family. And then when they wanted to go to medical school, they both were met with resistance just because of what was happening in their countries at the time. And so they ended up moving to Israel where they were accepted into medical school, um, you know, really with open arms. And they practiced for a very long time in a socialized medical system. And they really went into medicine because they loved it. And they really do think till this day that medicine is just the end all and be all of what you could do with your life. And they really tried to impart that on myself and my brother, but I had different interests as a child. You know, a lot of people go into medicine kind of growing up, think you're dreaming as a child that they want to be a doctor, but I actually took a different path and and my original love was the theater. Oh, I I had no idea. Oh, I'm so excited. Okay, keep going. (laughs) So I spent a lot of my time dancing and singing and when I moved to the U.S., really, and especially in high school, um, got into musical theater and high school and community theater. But my parents really kind of forbid me to go into that as a, as a field. And so I parlayed that more into an interest uh, into debate and speech tournaments and specifically broadcasting. And so I went into college with an interest in majoring in broadcast journalism, which is what I started out as, because I love educating. I love imparting knowledge. I love talking to people and interviewing people and just learning more about the world and about how people contribute to the world. But I became a little bit bored in that. And so in my senior year of college, I pivoted a little bit. I turned my interest in educating and and interviewing and talking to people into more of an interest in psychology, which is why I ultimately graduated with. And I also started volunteering in the mother-baby unit at Lawrence Memorial Hospital. I went to University of Kansas. I'm a Jayhawk. And I didn't tell my parents that I was volunteering there, but I just wanted to kind of peek into this world from a more objective view, removed from my parents' view of, of medicine. And I really sort of fell in love with it. And so I ended up doing a career change program. I, I, got a, I did a post-bac, I did a master's in biology along with that, and ended up applying to medical school, um, which landed me at George Washington, where I loved both medical and surgical aspects of medicine. And the one field that I found that incorporated those two and incorporated my love of psychology, which was my original major, was obstetrics and gynecology and specifically GYN oncology, actually, because you take care of the patients throughout their journey, both surgically and medically. So I I went into OBGYN as an intern to do GYN onc. I enjoy the OR very much, but as an intern, you spend most of your time on the floor. I became very, very close to my patients. And if you know anything about GYN oncology, it's mostly a lot of ovarian cancer that you see on the floors that are kind of bouncing in and out of admissions. Many of the patients, unfortunately, don't have a good prognosis. And so I became very close with my patients and their families. And the one thing I noticed about myself is that I became very emotionally attached. And I also noticed that the most uncomfortable conversations that I was present at were end-of-life discussions, specifically discussions of supportive care, hospice, when it's time to let someone, you know, fulfill their wishes with dignity. I had a very hard time with that because I'm a forever optimist. I don't give up on anything. I always say, go, go, go. You can do it. You can do it. And sometimes in oncology, that that does not a good oncologist make. Yeah, that doesn't work always. 
doesn't work. So, but I love being in the OR. And so I, in my second year, I got to spend a little more time in the OR and I found myself being assigned to a lot of the minimally invasive rooms. So things like laparoscopy and robotic surgery. And in those rooms were not only the GYN oncologists, but the REIs, right? The fertility doctors. And so I started spending more time in that realm. And one day one of the docs said, hey, do you want to come to office hours with me? And I did. And what I found was here is this intersection of medicine and surgery that it behooves you to be an optimist. And it makes you better doctor to not give up and support your patients through every decision they're making. At the end of the day, even though it may be an alternative path to building a family, in our field, there's always a way to build a family. Anyone walking through the door, we know no matter what their circumstance is, we can help them build a family. And so for me, we have one of the, I think, happiest corners of the quote, hospital that you could have um, in our field. And, and that's how I got here. And I love what I do. Okay. I have so many comments. Number one, you're such an optimist and I love it. I just literally wrote down in my notebook, my Molston, my little Molston, because you know, that's what I do. You know, that we can get everybody pregnant in some way or another, because I very much get attached to my patients. Like I know that you do too. And I do not celebrate the wins enough. And I let those losses kind of you know, hurt my heart a little bit too long. And I feel like sometimes it's really hard having a job where whatever you do does not have a hundred percent success rate. It's not, you know, you don't have any well child visits or anything that's ever going to be purely, let me just check on you and make sure things are good. So I love that optimism and that suits you very well. There's so much psych in our field. I can see why that was very, very helpful for you. And the couple other things I want to say is one, I really like that your story is not linear because I think it's very important for people who are listening, who are contemplating a career change in any form or fashion to realize that you do not have to have it all planned out from the get-go, that it's okay to listen and learn from yourself and change as you go along. And isn't it interesting, your theater, your broadcasting, one, your chicken and the egg show is so amazing. No wonder you're a great host. You would have been wonderful at that, although you would have been just bored if you were a broadcast journalist forever. But I think that, you know, our field has so much educating. No wonder you've taken onto social media so well, because with that interest in educating and communicating with people, you know, taking fertility and then bringing it to social media, I think is such a natural jump. What made you want to get on social media though? Because I know when you and I were training, this is not something that was talked about, encouraged. In fact, we heard the opposite. Please keep your personal life separate. Don't post on social media with your real name. What made you want to make the jump? Absolutely. So my entree into Instagram was really a creative outlet for me. So I think a lot of times, exactly what you said, that we take the fails with our patients. We ride this roller coaster with our patients. We feel the downs and we celebrate the ups. And I don't think, sometimes I don't think patients realize that, that we take our work home with us. So when someone has a negative pregnancy test or has a loss, it really weighs on us. And we stay up at night thinking about them. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that 97% of women aged 19 to 50 are not getting enough vitamin D from their diet? Ritual's Essential for Women 18 and Plus was shown to increase vitamin D levels by 43% in a clinical study. I love Ritual and I love taking their Essential for Women 18 Plus every single day. 
One reason I love it is that it's gentle on an empty stomach and it has a minty essence. So every bottle feels refreshing and is actually enjoyable. It's also clinically backed multivitamin with high quality and traceable key ingredients, and they have industry leading sustainability standards. No more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 and Over is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Rocket Money. Did you know that nearly 75% of people have subscriptions that they've forgotten about? Embarrassingly, I am one of those as well. And Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you that otherwise could have been a time-consuming process. Between streaming services, fitness apps, and delivery services, it can be never-ending. So Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. They monitor your spending and help you lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash A-A-W. That's rocketmoney.com slash A-A-W. Rocketmoney.com slash A-A-W. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. My closet has a tendency to get chaotic and crammed with a bunch of clothes that I don't really want to wear. What's been a game changer for me has been upgrading to high quality and affordable pieces from Quince. Now I have a wardrobe full of luxury and classic essentials and I stayed on budget. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands and they do this by partnering directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman and passing the savings on to us. In addition, Quince only works factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing and premium products and finishes. I personally am loving the linen pieces as it's Texas and summer's upon us. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. And so I wanted to find a way to kind of express my thoughts very openly and candidly. And I don't post that often. But when I post, I I post when I see something and it inspires me in some way or it makes me feel in a certain way and I want to write about it. You know, it takes a few minutes to read my posts, but for better or for worse. But that's kind of why I started it. It's kind of a creative outlet of letting me express to the audience out there, most of which are my patients or potential patients or, you know, anyone struggling, expressing messages of hope, showing that you're not alone and, and really explaining to people that your doctors or other people in this field are really here kind of by your side and and really trying to be genuine about it. I've tried to stay away from showing, you know, family or social things. I mean, sometimes I have social things on there. But it's really focused on when I see something, a picture, an image, a patient story that really inspires me. And I I really want to talk about it. And that's kind of how it started, just as a kind of creative outlet for me. 
When you transition practices, so I want to talk about the fact that you, you know, left a practice, which is always mm-hmm. really hard to do. And maybe you can fill us in on that journey because you know, I'm on my third practice, now my forever practice, but we naively leave medicine, not being taught how to negotiate, not being told what to look for in a job, not having much exposure to a private practice scenario at all. And then there's this huge number of people, I think it's over 70% leave their first job. And I want to hear your thoughts on that experience. I want to talk about where you are now and why that's a better fit. But also, how do we help younger women in medicine specifically know what to look for and know what to ask for when they're trying to find a job? Absolutely. I think this is something that's constantly, the second part of the question is constantly evolving for me. I've always been kind of a yes man. I think a lot of women in medicine are. We're just, we just work, 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 prove our worth, you know, maintain our it's how leverage. We're trained. It's how we're trained. How we're trained. Right. Absolutely. So for me, I, I trained, I love where I trained. I did my, both my residency and my fellowship at Cornell um, on the Upper East Side of New York. I love New York City. I've always since I was young. In fact, I wanted to, my parents wouldn't let me apply to medical schools in New York City because they thought it would be a cover for just finding an agent and auditioning for Broadway shows. (laughs) I'm not joking. But by the time I was a resident and I got to New York City, you don't have time to audition for anything. So my, by the way, my retirement plan is move into the city and audition for every off-Broadway little lady part I can I can. Oh my do. God, I so, love Just it. so you know, that's-, that's I'm going to come sit in the audience. Be like, <laughs> please, go and knock. Yes. Absolutely. But anyways, I'm a very loyal gal. So to me, I graduated fellowship. I, I went to ASRM. Back now, people are getting jobs earlier and earlier. But back then, really, you were interviewing. The beginning of interviews was third-year ASRM. I flew to San Diego. I had a five-week-old baby, my first baby. I interviewed with 17 practices in 48 hours. I was either interviewing or pumping. Wait, you interviewed at 17 practices while you were at ASRM? Yes. Oh in 48 and two days. I can't. <laughs> and I was I was taking milk. I wasn't one of those like big producers of milk. So I literally was pumping. And then there was a FedEx in the hotel. And I was FedExing. I was overnighting milk from San Diego to New York <laughs> to my to my baby. I mean, that's when I realized that really women can do anything as an aside. But anyway, I, I interviewed at that many practices because my husband was also a fellow at the time. He was a Mohs and Laser fellow in the city. And we were graduating fellowship at the same time. So we could have really gone anywhere. So I, I just wanted to see what was out there. Um, interestingly, my last interview at ASRM, which was at 4 p.m., like on a Tuesday or Wednesday, was was Shady Grove Fertility, which is where I landed where, more recently. That's like where you are now. <laughs> yeah. And I very, we were in very serious discussions at the time they were opening a lab in Philadelphia. I was, that was my, I was so pumped for that. It was really like kind of a dream opportunity for me. But then my husband found a very good opportunity in the city here in New York. And that, you know, it took me a long time to get over that. I just, I said, okay, we'll stay in New York. And I ended up taking a great job that I loved, right? I was at it for seven years um, with NYU Fertility. They had opened a lab in Greenwich, Connecticut. um, And the name of the practice was Greenwich Fertility. And it was a really nice hybrid for me of, you know, quasi-academic, but also private practice, a little more boutique-y, really in Greenwich and Westchester, 15 minutes from my house. It was a great fit. I had amazing partners there. but then. Things changed when private equity kind of came into the picture. I'm dumb, dumb, dumb. Super private honest. equity. 
private equity entered the picture. And, and in this case, they were after an academic center, which was NYU. And so I saw that coming. I really started to, I had to sit down and reevaluate what was important to me and what that really meant. It's one thing to be employed by a hospital system. It's another thing to be employed by a hospital system in which the practice is now owned by private equity. I think that's a lot of layers to appease. And again, I'm a yes person. I just want to make people happy. So that's too many people to make happy. Can't make everybody happy. Yeah. And so I, and, and it just so happened that at the same time, and I stayed, this is actually something very important for anyone out there who's any, any stage in life. I don't care if you're in college or you're a med student, you're a resident, always keep your bridges built, right? Always keep connections because I remember hanging up the phone with Mark Siegel, who's the CEO of of Shady Grove Fertility at the time in 2012, when I declined the final offer for SGF. And I kept in touch with him for those seven years that I was at the other practice. And we kept in touch and we, you know, happy holidays here and there, whatever. And when they were ready to come to New York, the first people in their minds were my former co-fellow, Tomer Singer, who's now my partner, who was a year above me at Cornell, he almost joined SGF the year before I did and ended up staying in New York because he just wanted to be in New York. He was at Northwell and, and me. And so that's kind of the key. If you keep in touch with people, like always, always leave your options open because you never know what happens down the line. And so, so it just yeah, so the happened. The world is small. The world in medicine the world is small. Is small. Exactly. And so it just so happened at the same time that I was contemplating you know, all of this was evolving within my practice. This opportunity popped up and I felt like I love building things. Um, it's a challenge in New York City. It's like no other market SGF has ever seen, <laughs> even though they have grown in every market. It's a very different kind of market. But here's an opportunity to bring something new to New York, to build it with one of my former co-fellows, which is really fun. And I didn't look back. I love it. So, you know, this brings up a good transition into talking about what patients should look for in clinics and how do we help people along this journey, especially when we start talking about IVF, which is scary and intimidating. So I get asked all the time, what should I look for in a clinic? How should I find a doctor? And I know that so many people Google and go to what's ever closest to them, which I'm always like, that's the worst idea. But what advice do you have for somebody who is at the point where they need a fertility doctor, a fertility clinic, when they go to look for who should I see? What type of clinic should I look for? So I think there's two key components here. You have to find a doctor that you're comfortable with and you have to find a clinic that has a good lab. The trickier part of the two is actually the la- assessing the lab part of things because there aren't many tools for patients to use to be able to assess a lab. And so what most people that know about the field and they're doing their research, they end up going on SART, which is A, very confusing, and B, it may not might not have everything you're looking for. So for example, for me at SGF New York, while I know that within the Shady Grove Network, we have we're always competing for the top one or two spots of implantation rates of all of our regions. And I know that our lab director is amazing and the lab, the pregnancy rates I'm so beyond happy with. You won't see them on start because you have to be in existence for at least two years to collect data in order to even get on there. And so that to me is a big ding for someone starting up a practice, I'm sure you may have, may or may not have encountered the same situation, right? Same. And it's, it's um, delayed. Everything reflects years prior. Exactly. So exactly. different lab person, yeah. different personnel, different people doing biopsies. It may not right. reflect right. current practice. Right. And so with regards to the lab, I think it's very important when you're talking to a doctor, I mean, 
most doctors hopefully would be transparent about what their fertilization rates are and their blast rates are, their implantation rates are, their pregnancy rates are. I think you can feel free as a patient to ask your doctor that. You may not find the information you're looking for on SART, especially when it comes you know, to a new clinic. Do you want your practice to be a SART member? Yes. I mean, they should at least be a member of SART, but you may not find the data that you're looking for. So I think that's number one is just making sure the lab is good and you can ask those questions as you as you need to. And then the second thing is really, well, the three things, right? The doctor. And then the third thing is the environment. What kind of treatment do you want? So I think a relationship with a doctor is very important. And that relationship is based on trust. And that trust really comes from being able to have an open conversation and having the time to have that open conversation. So you want a doctor who is going to be accessible Maybe they're not accessible 24-7, but if you wanted to schedule a phone call with them or just make sure they call you back by the end of the day or the end of the 48 hours or whatever it is, or send a message that they can reply back to you, you have to have a doctor that you can actually feel you know, ask questions to. And you have to have a doctor that you're comfortable asking questions to. So you don't yeah. want to feel intimidated asking a question. There, I always have patients that, you know, oh, I have this stupid question. But there's no stupid questions, right? Because that question is important to you. I think there's a lot of stress surrounding the process. And if you have a doctor who you feel comfortable bringing your concerns to, or even, you know, there's so much noise out there, right? On social media, all of us, I love social media, but all of a sudden it's become like everyone's an expert. Like, oh, it's terrible. Yeah. And there's like so the much fake news and false information. It's hard so to know much. what's right and what's not. Absolutely. So you have to find a doctor who you feel comfortable bringing them. I just read this on Instagram. What do you think about it? And then if you trust your doctor, they can you know accept it or dispel it or whatever it is. So finding a doctor you're comfortable with. And then the third thing is finding an environment you're comfortable with. I think there's a very big difference between like even monitoring in the morning. You know, when I love Cornell, I'm married to that institution and I you know, I went through treatment myself. I have a baby from there. But, but at the end of the day, monitoring is stressful. I mean, you're talking about people showing up at like 5.30 in the morning, setting up their laptops, waiting to be seen, sometimes waiting for two hours to see somebody. Wait, what? Always, yeah. Is, is it first come, City. first serve there or something? It, it, yeah. Well, yes, which, which we, I don't know if it is still during COVID. It probably isn't. That's the one thing I love about SGF. Even our huge centers, it's always by appointment. Yeah. Always, always. Which, which to New York practices seems very foreign. None of the big clinics have appointments. It's all first come, first serve. And so you don't have time for that. You want your appointment. You want to come in. You want to be seeing the same few people all the time. You, you know, it's it's much more comfortable when you don't have that kind of factory feel. You have a more one-on-one feel. I think that's really important also in, in finding a practice. Look, and my I think mind, if you, you're comfortable... Oh, I yeah. think my mind is blown by this first come, first serve, 5.30 in the morning oh, yeah. situation. That's like most large clinics in New York. That's what it is. It's changed with COVID, obviously. I hope. I don't know, but I hope so. But that's what it's always been, first come, first serve. You know, yeah. I think it's really interesting because I love what you're saying about the environment because your doctor or the clinic should not make this process any more stressful. It's stressful enough as it is. And I always say your doctor, this is a very personal relationship. And I know there are patients out there who've encountered experiences with physicians that made them feel belittled, not heard, their questions weren't answered, and they didn't feel like they had a voice in the process of which 
I always say, you don't have to stay there. You can go somewhere else because that type of environment is not good for anybody. That type of relationship we would never tolerate in another form of relationship in our life. And so finding a doctor you trust, like you said, that you can bring a question to and get it answered and have time with them. I also think it's a crazy idea. Some of these practices that have one physician and then nurses or mid-levels or general OBGYNs who are running their cycles and you never see the RE. You know, what did we do all this extra training and extra board certification for if you're just going to let somebody without the training run your IVF cycle? Don't you think that's crazy? That is key. And I didn't even bring that up because in my mind, I don't even, this sounds so terrible, but in my mind, I don't even consider those practices legitimate IVF practices. Yeah, but they're wrapped to, up but in, they do. Pre, they're wrapped up in yeah. pretty bows and You're right. they, so you know, that's, to so the that's consumer. Another question. That's another question for the patient. If you are a patient, you want to find out who's doing your monitoring, who's doing your results. So who's actually doing your dosing and who's doing your retrieval? Because that sounds crazy, but there's some places out there where they're training general OBGYNs to do retrievals and, and really who's managing your cycle and who's kind of giving you the roadmap for things. That's super important. And I think that's like becoming more and more rampant in our field. And for, for you guys out there listening who are patients, the reason that that's happening is because our field is being bought up by business people. And from a business perspective, it is much cheaper to hire an NP or a PA or a general OBGYN. And I have no issues with any of these entities. I have an amazing NP. I love her. She helps counseling my patients. She helps doing some ultrasounds, maybe a sailing sonogram or an IUI, but she is not dosing my IVF patients. And she is not the only one there monitoring. And she's not doing the pregnancy scans, some of which may not turn out great and you need counseling for that. And she's definitely not doing retrievals. So that is key. I think we love all these people in our field in different ways and clinics are set up in different different ways and that's all fine. But it is understanding who's doing what. If you see a, I mean, if you've never seen REI until the day of your embryo transfer, that's crazy. If you don't have an REI doing your egg retrieval, that's ridiculous. If you have somebody counseling you on the entire IVF process, you're not ever talking about your goals with somebody who understands the complexities of our field and managing a cycle. It's the management of a cycle by somebody not trained to do so that really gets me. But I think as a consumer, it might be hard to understand who does what. And I think, as you said, it's okay to ask, is this person board certified in OBGYN and REI? Who's doing what? Who's reviewing what? And really try to understand the structure of the clinic, both from a who's doing what standpoint, but also a how do you get information back? Do they call you? Do they email you? And, you know, what to expect. So having your expectations set appropriately makes the entire IVF process easier. If you are expecting to see your doctor and you walk and you see a nurse for every monitoring visit, that's not going to set your expectations at all in any way, right? 100%. And the other thing to just highlight It's not just happening in our field. It's happening in pretty much every field of medicine. The difference is, I think, because some aspects of our field are elective, it's seen as, you know, it's elective. You're just going to freeze your eggs. Like it's something that's become almost glamorized a little bit. But I think you have to take a step back and realize this is a medical procedure and medical procedures have risks potentially. The the risk is small, right? But there are risks like hyperstimulation syndrome and post-retrieval bleeds and, you know, some complications of IVF and egg freezing. And that's the importance of having someone who's double board certified in both OBGYN and REI. Because in an REI fellowship, all we're doing for three years 
is seeing these cycles again and again and again and knowing how to recognize the complications and manage them early on so that we can keep patients safe. That That's the bottom line. I think the most important reason to make sure that you're having an REI manager cycle. I was once approached by a company for a job and they said, kind of their vision was to be the sole cycle of fertility. You could walk into any clinic and it didn't matter, you know, who the instructor was, but it looked the same and it felt the same and care was exactly the same to every person. Of to which I said, that's ridiculous. Actually, care should be personalized. It needs to be really different based on who the person is and what they need and what they want. And by no means should we be making this standard and protocol throughout all clinics everywhere. That was mind-blowing, but it was seen as this very appealing thing, especially to millennials and on an Instagram world and where there's social selling. It became that that is a, that's the pitch. I was like, this is the pitch. That's the opposite yeah. of what I think should happen. It was like, oh, as an REI, you can just walk in and do egg retrievals and embryo transfers all day and yeah. never counsel patients and never monitor, manage cycles. And I, I'm over here being like, what do you mean never counsel patients? Do you not understand that's part of the joy of this field for me is knowing my patients and counseling them and understanding their goals and walking with them through this journey, not just prancing in for procedures, mind blown what business people who are not in medicine think is important in our field. A hundred percent. And that's why those same business people are investing in very aggressive marketing campaigns rather than having the best practitioners that they possibly could on the ground. And I think over time, patients will make that decision and they'll, they'll find the experiences that they're really looking for. I totally agree. Do you have any tips and tricks for somebody who is going to start an IVF cycle. So, okay, I saw, you know, I saw my doctor, they said I need IVF. I'm really nervous about it. What do you want the consumer, the patient to know? So first I think, I do think lifestyle is important. I am not one to push kind of extremist decisions. Like I don't cut out food groups. I don't believe in totally altering your life for this process because ultimately that's an additional stress, which I think also plays a role. But I do think it's important to have a healthy lifestyle. So one of the best things you can do is kind of optimize yourself from a health perspective. So, you know, weight is a very important part of that. That's a very difficult discussion to have with patients, but we know based on many, many studies that outcomes are oftentimes linked to weight, specifically in very high BMI populations of over 30. And that's just because for several reasons. One is a medication kind of distributes over a body surface area. And so you end up with a very high BMI, you end up needing a lot more medication. Second, your body may not respond to that medication. Third, it's much harder to see the ovaries. And so you may not get as many eggs. One, because you may not be responding to the medication because of the body surface area and because you just can't see that you can't access the ovaries as easily. And also it makes the process of retrieval itself a little bit more risky from an anesthesia perspective. So most centers do have BMI cutoffs. Those are set up for safety reasons. So for example, in my center, you know, because we're not located in a hospital, as most IVF centers are not in a physical hospital, we have a BMI cutoff of 40. And that's a very difficult discussion to have with a patient, but it really behooves the patient to, you know, we have that because from a safety perspective, we're the same, we have the exact same thing. Yeah. And so, so that's something really important, just optimizing your health as far as weight, as far as blood pressure. So if you have, and this is not just for your cycle, this is for pregnancy in general. So 
having your blood pressure under control, whether you need to work with your internist on that or a cardiologist, whoever you usually work with, any kind of medical issue, diabetes, for example, we want to have that really under control. Again, not only for the IVF cycle, but for the pregnancy itself. If you're someone who already kind of is optimized from a health perspective, just leading a balanced life, making sure you incorporate a lot of fruits and vegetables into your diet, obviously. I'd love to hear your thoughts on vegan and, and, you know, reducing meat specifically. But for me, the one food group, I think if someone had to minimize or eliminate something, I would say refined sugars is something that I feel that most of us could probably minimize in our diet. And those of my patients preparing for IVF, I always kind of promote that. I think having, I don't think you should start any kind of new physical program, but I think exercise, whether that means running to you or your Peloton to you or yoga to you, I think continuing that throughout your journey in a moderate way. And we can talk about, you know, when to stop high impact exercise and things like that. I think taking prenatal vitamins, we can talk about supplements. I don't know what you think, but for me, my, usually I say anything that could help and doesn't hurt. So prenatal vitamins, hundred percent vitamin D, we're all deficient in it. CoQ10, which gets so much buzz in our world, right? So CoQ10, for those yep. of you who don't know, ubiquinol is an enzyme that's basically found in really every powerhouse of every cell in our body. There's a lot of data out there on the benefits of CoQ10 in the cardiovascular world. Not too many studies on fertility. One of the main studies that started all this buzz really came from mice. So there aren't really great randomized control styles studies in humans. But to me, CoQ10 is good for you anyway. So if it may benefit you and it definitely doesn't hurt, go for it. There's other supplements that are touted a lot that I'm not as big of a fan of, like DHEA, which is a testosterone derivative. And there's some studies, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but if it's something that's causing you negative impact, like sometimes my DHA patients have acne or kind of abnormal hair growth, then I say, you know, step away. To me, prenatal, CoQ10, vitamin D is all good. Everything else is up for discussion. And then that's all physical stuff. I think it's, oh, when it comes to alcohol, I say moderation, you know, meaning like you can have a glass of wine here or there, but no not like you did during the pandemic. Yeah, like exactly. You know, smoking is a hands down, never ever, no, no, you know, things like that. And then really setting up like a good support system for yourself, I think is important. That doesn't have to incorporate a lot of people. I think if you just have that one person that you can talk to, whether it's your friend or even a therapist, which a lot of my patients find helpful, it's okay to be guarded with your journey a little bit. Not everyone has to know everything all the time. I mean, when I was going through things, I didn't tell anybody. <laughs> I didn't even tell my parents, you know? <laughs> I always so. say you have to share with somebody. Now that somebody doesn't have to be all of Instagram. It could be your therapist, your spouse, your best friend, your coworker, but you need somebody who can be there to support you because you don't have to walk the entire journey alone, nor is it good for us as humans to kind of be going through this thing and hiding it from everybody. I mean, I was the same way with all my stuff because I didn't tell very many people and I kind of wish I'd opened up my net a little bit bigger, but I had one coworker who knew and it was nice to have that person who one, treated me, but also I could go to who was my friend to support me when I didn't feel comfortable sharing it with the rest of my life because this is really hard on you. It's isolating. You feel left behind. You're going to get baby shower, kid birthday party. There's going to be all these moments that make you really question if your future is going to look like what you thought it would. And I don't think it has to be totally survived alone. 
And now a word from one of our sponsors, Caraway. Spring is coming and I always love a good home reset. Non-toxic cookware is the perfect way for you to kick off your own spring cleaning. With so many collections to explore, there is a Caraway for every cook. Their internet famous kitchenware is a staple for any home. It comes with beautiful shades to fit your aesthetic, but most importantly, you're ditching the chemicals. Caraway's non-toxic kitchenware comes a chemical-free ceramic coating so your food can be prepared without any of those hard-to-pronounce chemicals leaching in to your healthy ingredients. Everybody knows that I am a big believer that our environment impacts our body, and that's why I trust Caraway with my cooking. Visit carawayhome.com A-A-W to take advantage of this limited time offer for 10% off your next purchase. This deal is exclusive for our listeners, so visit carawayhome.com A-A-W or use the code A-A-W at checkout. Caraway non-toxic cookware made modern. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Absolutely. And when it comes to all those baby showers, and I mean, now we're not doing as much of that. So it's actually been really beneficial like, to my COVID. patients. Yeah. You know, really hard time for me, for example, when the whole world was getting pregnant and I wasn't, was during the holidays. I mean, we don't do holiday cards in my house, but all the rest of my friends do. And I mean, if I got one more holiday card with a baby on it or saw one more post on Facebook, I just, I thought I was going to explode. So I think it's okay to kind of allow yourself to to step back from those things. You know, just allow yourself that is, is what I would say also. I think that's a great point. And about all the other stuff you said, I'm very similar. I think anything that you can control is good because there's so much of this process that is a loss of control. And that's what a lot of us struggle with when we're going through infertility. So you can take the prenatal vitamin. You can take the vitamin D. You can take the CoQ10. You can go for that walk. You can schedule an appointment with your therapist. You can choose to go to acupuncture or whatever you want to do. I totally agree. I put almost every patient on a prenatal, a D and a CoQ10. And then the other things I discuss, and it depends on the scenario. You know, somebody who's got really bad diminished ovarian reserve, is really thin, doesn't have much time. Sometimes we say, hey, may or may not help to take DHEA, but it might make sense in our scenario to feel confident that we're doing everything possible, even if it means putting up with some side effects that aren't hurtful, but maybe may not make us feel the best. Or same thing with different supplements and PCOS. So I think the other things require a discussion. You know, you don't want to just, I will see patients come in with a supplement list that's like 20 things long. Yes. And literally any supplement that has ever been mentioned for fertility, they're taking. And I'm like, oh no, some of these are for PCOS and some for DOR. And it just shows that people are just trying to do what they can. So ask your doctor. You should have a doctor who's willing to discuss some of these things with you. Refined sugars, carbohydrates processed foods, the processed foods need to go. That's not going to be good for our body. It's very inflammatory. I do recommend limiting meat, but mostly because Mm -hmm. it 
forces people to intake more fruits and vegetables by default. And I think that we have study after study showing that increased intake of fruits and vegetables is really good. I don't tell people they have to eliminate it, but I say, can you take meat down to one serving a day? Can you do meatless Monday? What can you look at in your diet so that you're purposely making the choice to have that veggie rich meal? And I don't love, you know, when people say, oh, like gluten's the enemy, carbs are the enemy and try to put people on these really restrictive diets. I think it just, you know, whole foods, the things that everybody tells you are good for you, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, legumes, like those type of things that grow, those are good for you. And same thing with BMI and weight and exercise. The only thing I'll add is I say stress is a very hard variable to assess, but that you need to be aware of your stress and figure out what works for you to try to decrease it. Because we know you're about to enter a stressful process. So is that acupuncture? Is that meditation? Is it therapy? Is it yoga? Is it, you know, what is the thing that can help you have those moments of letting your cortisol drop and kind of feeling reset? And I'm a planner. So like I'm somebody who has to like have it on my schedule if I'm going to go to it because I can have all the best intentions of the world of being like, yeah, yeah, I'll journal for five minutes. No, I won't. But, you know, I would show up for an acupuncture appointment. So even though acupuncture is not magic, that self-care time of a quiet room, on your schedule with nothing else to do is extremely helpful in resetting your body and your stress. Do you have any stress tips for anybody? Because that's the hardest one, I think. Yeah. I mean, the, the one thing, it's exactly what you said. Life is a stressful state, definitely in New York. <laughs> and people here get pregnant all the time. But there are ways to be able to manage that. And that's different for every person. So for example, I have patients who swear by acupuncture. They love acupuncture. They think it's so helpful for them. To me, I view acupuncture as something that if it helps you feel control and it helps you relax and it helps you, it helps you have that set aside time for yourself, as you said, then it's beneficial. If it's another appointment and more money and something you're rushing to and you feel like you have to stuff it into your schedule or else you, you're not going to optimize yourself, then it's counterproductive. Yes. And that goes for everything. So like exactly what you said, it's different for every person. Like for me, in order for me to feel stress relief, I have to exercise. I don't exercise for, sure, it's good for your health and it's good for weight loss and all these other things. But I exercise because for me, that's relaxing to me and it helps me kind of take things down a notch from a, from a mind-body perspective. And yoga is that for another person. For me with yoga, I feel like I only have an hour to the day. I I don't want to, I'm not bringing up my heart rate with yoga. So I'd rather spend it, you know, in some more intense exercise, but to some of my patients, yoga is helpful. Massage to a lot of my patients is helpful. Having a therapist, I think, you know, is, is also key to a lot of my patients. You don't have to just see someone if you feel like you're kind of in the depths of depression and anxiety. You can see someone situationally just to get you through this small, hard time that you're having or this specific situation that you're having. And there's so many therapists out there that see infertility patients every day or see lost patients every day. Many of them have even gone through it themselves. So I think that's really good also just to have that objective person. I think support groups are helpful for some people and they're they can be destructive for others. So support groups, you have to be a little bit careful with. And it's always nice to have support groups that are run by a therapist because- yeah they can manage who's coming into that support group and they know who's going to kind of suck the air out of the room and who's going to add to the conversation. Cause you have to be a little bit careful not to enter kind of that general comparison zone. Yeah. Right? Yes, exactly. 
because everybody's different. And the same thing with social and the same thing with all the boards on Facebook and Instagram and other things. You just have to be a little bit careful. Everyone has their own story and their own journey and their own AMH and their own medical history. They just, just realize like everyone's individual and you should always run things by your doctor. I think it's important for patients to realize that behind the scenes, maybe they don't feel like they see us that much or they have that much FaceTime, you know, but really what is happening, and I'll let you share your take on it, but I see a patient and they need IVF for X, Y, or Z reason. And, you know, I am there looking at, okay, how old you are, what medical things do you have? What's your antral follicle count? What's your AMH? Which protocol do I think is going to work to get the most mature egg? And then every time we have a scan, even if it's not me doing it, it's me half the time at our practice, but then I'm looking at it. What's your follicle size? What's your estrogen? Does it make sense? Do I need to change something? What else do I have to do? And our field is often really filled with kind of perfectionist people who are really searching for that optimal result all the time. And I think that sometimes patients think they come in for an ultrasound and blood work and because their dose doesn't change, nobody was behind the scenes kind of antagonizing every decision. You know, I will sit there and stare at it and think about it, every little choice that we make along the way. And I'm sure you're the same way behind the scenes of these IVF cycles too, right? Absolutely. I'm a little bit of a control freak as are my my partners. And that's why we work well together. But yeah, we do all of our own results. I mean, today I'm not in the office and my partner is covering, but I'm still looking at results and he's still calling me with questions and, and we hem and haw over these things. Sometimes when I'm tied about triggering someone, I call my partners and phone we, a friend, we, phone a friend. Yeah, phone a friend. And we we talk about it. Or if someone's failed a cycle, we we talk, well, what will we do differently? And that's the one thing I love about SGF also is that I have 66 other doctors, I can just send one email and I'll get 30 responses in 15 seconds of what other people would do. But we do agonize over these. And you're right. Our field specifically tends to draw a very detail-oriented crowd. And I think you'll find that in your doctor. Our field is interesting. It's always busy you know, in the office. And the, the busy times are the morning during monitoring and then the afternoon where you're doing all the results and making all the calls. But between that, a lot happens. That's why it's important, again, to touch on the fact that you want to go see a board-certified REI because that's who's hemming and hawing over your results. And there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. I also think it's interesting, or I always think it's a red flag, I'll say, if a patient sees a doctor and at the very first visit, that doctor with no data, let's pretend it's a patient who's, you know, not been out there in the wild, has no data on them, just shows up. And that doctor knows, oh, this is the protocol I do. Because I always say there should not be a, this is the protocol I do. There should be, you know, these series of protocols that we have that we apply to different scenarios. And I will tell somebody, hey, if you're average for your age, once we do testing, then I typically would use blah, 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 but it will depend on your values. So I really think people need to understand that they should be going somewhere that's personalizing treatment for them and that some places don't do it. I don't know if it's, they don't feel comfortable, laziness, easier, you know, streamlining protocols. You can have, you know, those people underneath you managing things if it's just one protocol all the time. But I think that's a big red flag if somebody knows exactly from the moment of seeing you, this is the protocol I do, not without any clinical data. Don't you think that? I'm sure you've seen that where you get get results. You're like, why'd they do this protocol? This doesn't make any sense. 
Absolutely. And I always tell patients in the initial consult and even write it in my note that their workup will dictate the treatment. I may tell them there's possibilities of this or that, but let's just see what we get. And that's going to dictate what what protocol I put you on. I 100% agree with that. But yeah, I do see a lot of second and third opinions, especially in New York. There's 22 competitors within probably seven blocks of me. And so there's a lot of doctor shoppers in New York, by the way. (laughs) Most people I see aren't just like coming from their OBGYN or coming from a place where they have a file like this and we're talking about all their previous cycles. And that happens a lot. I mean, you, you see it a lot. You come in, get your period, you're like immediately thrown on the pill or you're immediately just told to come in and start. <laughs> and that's tough. And as a patient, as a consumer, you can control that a little bit because I also think patients in this space and probably where you're from too, but definitely around here are very in a rush. Like they want everything to happen yesterday. And I I really feel that when you rush things, you know, that's when things go wrong. So when you don't wait for results, when you're not doing the appropriate things, even from an insurance perspective, I mean, it takes time. That's another thing. Sometimes we're ready to go. We have everything, but we need pre-authorization and we're just waiting for United, the 15 to 18 days to get the off, you know? And so if you just wait and just go, go with the way things were supposed to go from a protocol perspective of let's wait for the results. Let's do all the bloods first and then have another follow-up conversation and solidify a plan. And and then let's wait for everything to get settled with insurance. Then less things are likely to go wrong. I mean, I really believe that. Oh, such a good point. I think, you know, I'm at the stage now of my career where patients will be like, I want to get started today. And I will clearly say, nope, we're waiting for the protocol that makes sense for you. I'm sorry, yeah. that takes three weeks longer. No, no, no. And, and sometimes than, we'll lose the patient. Sometimes that's we will. Okay. And I feel I feel really confident saying that if I am saying this is the best course of action for you and you're choosing to do something else based on speed, it's not my job to let you do something that's against the best advice. Then I'm not the right doctor for you. And mm-hmm. the reality is that, you know, a few weeks to kind of get everything right is not the worst thing ever. But, you know, earlier in my career, being a yes person, being trained to be a yes person, when you would see a patient who was like, I want to get started, I want to get started, I would feel that need to try to rush them and get them started, even if that meant choosing a protocol that wasn't right or stressing out my already stressed out staff because they had enough teaches. And there's no reason for it to be like that. We should do things the correct way and the right way. And I know that that's hard as a patient, but I always say you should let, let go of that, like let go of the control to us. We're going to do it the right way. I know it can be frustrating, but it should give you confidence that we're going to do it right instead of just getting it done, because then you're going to have less of a need to have to do it over and over and over again. A hundred percent. And one other thing I, I definitely see trending kind of in our field in general, because of this advent and infusion of business into our field is I feel like a lot of patients that I see and whether it's self-inflicted or it's coming from the doctor are just like being pushed into IVF sometimes a little too soon. So, I mean, I'll see patients who've been maybe trying for six months and they're young and they have a great AMH level and they want to do IVF yesterday because the doctor they saw told them that that's what they have to do. And so the one thing that I will say to patients, you should never feel pressure to do anything. And if you feel that you are being pressured, then that is not the right doctor for you. You know, that's, that's just not, you are the captain of the ship and your doctor's job. Like I view my job as a physician, my patient's the captain. And I view my job as providing them education and tools and kind of guiding the ship. But at the end of the day, 
they're still the captains of the ship. And so you should never feel pushed or pressured to do anything. I think that's important. That's something that we find sometimes out there in our field. Oh, I mean, for sure, especially by different generations of physicians specifically or um, people who are having to pay off their investors in a private equity model. Because I think that the reality is that, you know, we have different tools, but I view medicine the same way as you. My job is to educate you about what your options are, not let you do something counterproductive to your time, but also to let you make the choice. And no matter what happens, because I don't know what the outcome is going to be, no matter which choice you have. You know, we don't have 100% success per treatment option. I want you to sit there at the end of it, no matter what happens, and feel confident that you made the best decision you could with the data you had, that you were educated enough and you felt comfortable with it and didn't look back saying, oh gosh, I wish I had made a different choice or if only I had known. And that's a complex decision for everybody. And I think that that really is what the art of our field is about, is that counseling, is understanding somebody's entire family goals is understanding, you know, where they are and what, and the intricacies of our field, because IVF isn't the answer for everybody yet. It does help a ton of people. And, you know, I think that it's just a very interesting time in the space. I'm happy to be a doctor in it and not like a consumer in it, because I do Mm -hmm. think that there's been such a shift from when I was in training until where we are now. And I think that it's really important for patients to become advocates for themselves. Unfortunately, that's what they're having to do in our field is kind of say, I want to be treated in this way. I deserve to be treated by a doctor who's board certified in this. I want to understand why you're choosing this protocol or why you're recommending this treatment. And they should have the answers to those questions. A hundred percent. I agree. But it's tough. I mean, the space has changed so much. The last thing I want to say before I have you share kind of where everybody can find you is that, you know, IVF can be an expensive diagnostic test sometimes. Don't you find that? And I find that I do have patients on the flip end come in and say, I just want to do IVF because it'll work. And I'm like, oh, that's that's not the case. You know, now it has the highest success rate of all the tools that I have. So it's great for a lot of different reasons, but it doesn't always work. And I don't know if you see that too. And then patients are really shocked if that first transfer doesn't work or if they had, you know, poor progression in culture. And then we're saying, oh, well, this is part of why you haven't gotten pregnant naturally Mm -hmm. is poor embryo development. But sometimes it gives us information, but it doesn't always work. And I don't know what your take is on that. Absolutely. So I think that part of being a doctor is really setting up expectations for better or for worse. So, you know, the patients I worry most about is my unexplained infertility population because I don't know why it's not working, right? I don't know why it's not working. And I always tell patients when I talk about pros and cons of IVF, under the pros column is obviously efficiency to pregnancy, controlling for multiples because we really like to put back one embryo at a time and and fertility preservation. And one of the, the last pros I always mention is It just tells us a lot more about your status of fertility, right? A lot of patients walk into a lab with unexplained infertility and walk out with an explanation of, okay, you can see the eggs under the microscope. We we know that there's an egg quality issue or there's a sperm quality issue or there's an embryo quality issue, which is reflective of of both components together. And, And that's something that's hard to swallow when it happens because yes, a lot of people have this idea that IVF is a sure shot and it's a slam dunk. But even if you take the perfect scenario, a genetically tested embryo, a beautiful genetically tested embryo, 
coming from a 20-something-year-old donor and you put it into a gestational surrogate, right? A perfect uterus, a proven uterus, you're going to plateau your pregnancy rates between 60 and 70%, right? Depending on the year or the month or whatever your stats are. And so sometimes people are shocked to hear that, yeah. but they have to know it. And, and specifically with my unexplained infertility patients, I kind of lay out for them, you know, it's unexplained. There's a little bit of a wild card. There's so many steps that have to happen, right? You have to respond to the medication. Then once you respond, we have to be able to retrieve the eggs. Then we have to be able to fertilize the eggs. Then they have to grow out in culture. If you're genetically testing them, then we have to send them for testing and they have to come back normal. And then they have to survive the thaw. And then they have to implant in the uterus. And of course, once you jump through all those hoops, you're going to find yourself with a pregnancy rate that's, you know, over 50%. But even in those most perfect situation. Perfect scenario. Yeah. yeah. You're still going to have about 40% that fail. And so I think as long as patients kind of really understand that from the beginning, and, and there's some phenomenon that we see a lot of. So for example, I don't do gender select, elective gender selection. So like, let's say you come and you want, you have three girls and you want a boy, you know, I don't do that. SGF in general doesn't do that. But at my former practice, one of my partners did it for family balancing, which is fine. I mean, I'm not judging at all. But something interesting that I found from that is we would get these fertile myrtles who had three, four boys or three, four girls really easily. And they were doing IVF electively only for the purpose of having the opposite sex. And a lot of them did really poorly in the lab which is so interesting because I don't think nature always totally extrapolates to a lab, yeah. right? And so even for those of you out there wanting to do this electively, you know, it's, it's still not a slam dunk for a lot of patients. Really interesting. I think so. it's so interesting and there's so much we're learning. And I think this is always something that I want to tell people is that, you know, this field is constantly changing. New technology gets introduced before it has been fully studied. It is a crazy world, both for good and for bad, things that can help people. We want them rolled out. We want to be able to offer them to patients, but you need a physician who can sit on the other side and talk about pros, cons. Should you do an ERA test or should you not? What does the study show? Because there is so much that's changing and the field's so different than it was seven years ago. It'll be completely different seven years from now. So I think that it's really important to have somebody on the other side of the table, who's walking this journey with you, you know, who's the first mate on your ship, as you say, who's keeping up with the literature, but can explain it and talk you through, here's why I would recommend this or not recommend this. But ultimately, you're the captain, understanding that, you know, you don't really know how rough the water is going to be. You're making the best decisions you can along the way. Anand, I love you. I mean, I could have you on all day long and I'll have to have <laughs> you back, but I do want you to go ahead and tell everybody where they can find you both as sure. a patient and on social sites and how they can get in touch with you. Sure. Um, so I am look, I am at Shady Grove Fertility New York, which is on 60th between Lex and Park in Manhattan. We're also opening our Brooklyn office um, soon well, within the next uh, month. Yes, we're super pumped about that. You can either reach out to us. You can go to our website. It's www.shadygrovefertility.com. Um, you can also find us on social. It's at Shady Grove or I'm at Dr. Not Brower. But uh, yeah, that's the best place to find us is really the website and, and social. Perfect. And we can link all of that in show notes if anybody wants awesome. to go there and link and become a patient or learn more about you along the way. And just thank you so much for spending the time and sharing all your wisdom with all of us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for everything you do for 
all the women out there. We appreciate it. Oh, I love you. Friends, that was a long one, but I hoped you love it. And a huge, huge thanks to Anat for coming on and sharing all of her wisdom with all of us. As always, I appreciate you so much when you follow. Feel free to leave a review or share with friends. Would love it if you check out the YouTube channel, Natalie Crawford MD, or follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. Bye, friends. taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com